So, day two. <clears throat> if day one was uh, sort of adjusting to the environment of the retreat, I often think of day two as um, uh, starting the uh, inevitable process of dealing with the um, the arising of discomfort and pain that can often come up on a retreat. It's more like you enter a room, and when you first enter it, you don't quite know uh, what the room is about, so you spend a day kind of settling in and finding out uh, where the coffee or tea urn is and how you can escape if you need to and how to make the whole thing work. And then day two... uh, it's as if there's a big reflective mirror on the other end of the wall. And the day two, you start noticing the reflection of the mirror. And in subsequent days, we approach the image ever closer. And uh, day two, when we first begin to notice the image of ourself through the reflective inward gaze, um, it can be, um, it's not always, for, for all people, it's not always... Um, a pretty image. We begin to see uh, some of the patterns that drive our actions, some of the ways that we inevitably work the world, and some of the um, conditioned tendencies that we have in in our lives. And we know that their arising in this special environment is not unique to this environment. We also see that our lives have been carved out of these patterns, <clears throat> and and so it's it's not not often pretty. Uh, to face ourselves, but it's almost always useful. And the reason I put an almost always useful in there is because, um, as Carol mentioned last night, the intentionality of how we use that image can either be for our benefit or for our betrayal, very simply. And so tonight I would like to uh, fold Carol's talk on... um, intention with a a talk on attention. And how I'm going to do that is by talking about uh, caring attention. Caring attention. Because I don't think those, I think the word should be hyphenated. If there is a, a word that for the West is most um, appropriate, uh, I think it's the word caring. We, uh, we're we set uh, to act from our old conditioning with our own intentions uh, when we come into our spiritual work, just as we have in our daily life. And often those, the intention is to um, work with ourselves, but we betray the intention to work with ourselves uh, because of our conditioned uh, reflex to be self-brutal to be unkind. And so we meet the image of the mirror we see in the hall with a lot of judgment and criticism. And that actually hardens or can embitter and throw off the whole spiritual journey. So unless we have the proper alignment of our attention, with wise intention, then our spiritual journey can be uh, just um, a resurfacing of the old problems and old strategies that we have lived with throughout our life. This is no small undertaking. It's no small undertaking. And literally, uh, more than 50% of what probably Carol and I do in the course of the day is to constantly... Uh, reframe the issues that arise in interviews with self-kindness. We are replete. We are diminished in that quality. I don't know why exactly it's such an epidemic. Self-dislike and self-unworthiness is such an epidemic in this particular culture, but it certainly is. And so when we talk about attention, attention, 
we certainly have to talk about caring. And I'd like you to couple those words, even though uh, the three of us may not say caring attention, uh, please couple those words every time you hear either one of them. Because attention without caring uh, can be uh, either skillful or unskillful. I mean, the thief may show a lot of attention, focus, as he's cracking open the safe and listening for all the signs of police cars or whatever you listen to when you're a thief. (laughs) So is that skillful attention? Also, the way we can um, approach just the word attention when we have the ready, set disposition to dislike ourselves is we using this attention to sort of escape our skins, to get out of ourselves. And I'll look at this thing uh, from a distant, detached, buffered way, but don't ask me to feel it. Don't ask me to rub up against it with intimacy, with caring. Don't, let, don't ask me to be affected by what I see. So attention without caring is really observing life without being touched by life, or can be. And because without caring, the sense of I is not really considered, it's not taken in as part of the observation, then often goal orientation and ambition and striving become the mechanism through which the observation, the attention, is cast. You know, it's, it's quite a beautiful... Um, uh, when I think of the elegance of the Buddha's methods, uh, the one foundation of his methods was uh, uh, just the light of attention the light of attention. And I just want to bring this flashlight in just to... And attention in its most uh, pristine form, just just let me um, just feel the pressure of the light on you there. Just notice, notice, notice that the light essentially uh, doesn't affect you at all. It's completely neutral. It doesn't push you. It doesn't force you. It doesn't judge you. It just reveals what is hidden, what is dark. In its most pristine form, that is exactly the way our inward attention should be. If you ever want to question whether your attention is properly aligned with your heart, with caring. Match it with the sunlight or the light of this beam. Is it applying any pressure whatsoever on you? Is it is there a backward commentary about how awful of what, what it sees? And how terrible. Is there any judgment from the light beam whatsoever? You see, there's not. And therefore, we can trust it. It's because it applies no pressure, provides no commentary. accepts whatever it lights upon, we can trust it. If we add one quality to it, we can't trust it. We are minding it. M-I-N-D-I-N-G, minding it. We are seeing the light through the mind. And the mind has a lot of things to say about you. The mind has a lot of things to judge and to comment 
about what it sees. And so if the awareness has any of that, we have to be quiet enough to be able to perceive that. Now the other thing about this is that it has to be sustained. We come in, and if I can just use this model of the room as our mind, we come in to this room with every intention to initiate the light beam and to look around. That's really what the meditation is in its most elementary way. We just come in and look around with our inward attention. But we soon find out that our attention is anything but steady. In fact, it's just whipping around the room, outside the room, and looking around and coming back in, staying a few seconds here and going there. And, co- and if we're honest, most of our time, these first couple of days, have been like this. Right? So let us all be very honest. Even though you look like Buddhas, I know what's really going on in there. <laughs> And the instructions say, just bring your attention to the breath or the body sensation, staying with it, and when it leaves the breath or the body, no matter how long it's been away, just gently return. And all of the paraphrasing, all of the instructions all of the descriptive comments are really to neutralize what we really want to do, which is to criticize ourselves for not staying on the breath, for to bring forth the old habits of judgment and just unworthiness that many of us feel. And we say, allow, just let be. Just let it reveal, just see. Because that is as close as we can come to the descriptions of a light beam. The words we use are supposed to be as close as we can come to the qualities of light. Because that's what we're trying to get you back to, return to. The other thing that we don't really believe is that just showing this light in here is going to do much anything. I mean, I've had to work and take workshops and analyze and justify, go back in history, dwell upon, journal, on and on. I've had to do all those things. Now he's or she is saying... Just come in and bring your attention, bear attention upon. How does that help me? How does that do anything? Are they just... So behind the scenes, we say, okay, that sounds good, but I'm not going to give up my analysis or my justification or my blame. I'm going to keep things going pretty much as they always have because I know that that's what makes it all meaningful, is my analysis, my analytical understanding of what I see. And so we maintain kind of a web of thought as something arises. We cover it with the coating of memory and all of the reasons that we feel the way we have felt and the history that we have felt it and all of that. So let's look at what or why, just caring attention is enough. Just caring attention. Just a light beam. Just a light beam. It's, in science, there is a, a law, I think it's called the law of parsimony or parsimony, and it's that when a certain elegance of the universe, when, when you discover a, a law that's so elegant and so perfect, 
it just has to be right. There's a certain sense of rightness of just... Because of how it's, it's, it's perfect manifestation. And sometimes when I think of the tool that, the base tool, the Buddha gave countless tools, but the base tool is just what we're talking about tonight, this bare attention. The base tool, the found, foundation. I think of it as so elegant, it's so beautiful in its simplicity. I mean, we have developed uh, profound manuals of commentary on all of the Buddhist teachings. But in its essence, this is what it's about. This is what it's about. Awareness in the beginning, awareness in the middle, and awareness in the end. And everything else, everything else besides the light beam must be observed and understood. And it's that observation and its accompanying understanding, which is a byproduct of observation, that comes from the looking, from the light beam. Shine attention upon something and it reveals what it is to itself, to awareness. Shine light upon something and we see what it is. We don't have to work it out. We just have to see what it is. Because what it is, is benign. Why we have to feel as if we need to work it out is because we don't think it's benign. Literally, listen to the words, we don't think it's benign. We think it's malevolence. Stop thinking and it becomes benign. When we just see it without commentary, it's not a problem. In fact, have you ever noticed when you're engaged in something, like maybe you're really interested in the garden, you're a gardener or whatever. And for a long period of time, your day may be very full of the common and ordinary problems of living, but then there is this respite time when you're actually in the garden, focused on gardening, let us say, just as an activity of, for an example, and your problems aren't there. Now, as soon as you put down the spade, as soon as you finish washing your hands, the problems return. And we think the problems were always there. We just didn't dwell on them while we were in the garden. No, false. The problems were not in existence when you weren't dwelling on them. It's not as if they're on the shelf somewhere waiting for you to come back, waiting for you. No. They exist only, only through your mulling over them, through your creating the discord and resistance to them. And perhaps there was this moment of time in which that resistance wasn't present and the problems weren't there. We don't ever put one and one together hmm, maybe this is how a sane life can be lived. Just watch it sometime. Watch, see what a problem is. Don't try to work, do so much by working out the problem. See what a problem is. What, how does a problem come in to existence? What are the conditions from which a problem arises. It needs fundamentally your resistance and then your commentary over, to, over top, overlaid on that resistance. And then you have a problem. 
Now we're pretty dedicated to having problems. In fact, we're so dedicated to having problems that we come to a retreat in which we are supposed to learn about problem, true problem resolution, releasing ourselves from the resistance, that we bring our problems into the very environment itself and maintain our problems so that we have something to do while we're solving the problem of our problems. If that doesn't sound something like Dr. Zeus or something, I don't know what does. Because what do we get from a problem? I mean, why do they arise? If they're self-generated, why do they arise? We get something out of it. There's a payoff. You know what we get? We get to be problematic. (laughs) I hate to say it, but we get our differentiation. We get the burdens of differentiation. And we love to be differentiated. So we maintain our problems to enhance our outline, our distinction. Now all of that is, for the most part, unconscious. And so when we enter the room of our mind, we don't know what the problem is. But perhaps, as Carol very nicely pointed out last night, we have at least have enough understanding to know it's no longer out there. That the root cause of my ill at ease, my disappointment, my dissatisfaction, loneliness, envy, jealousy, is not the other person. And because it hasn't worked to blame. And we see the mess the world is from a millennium of blame. So, somehow, we're willing to come in here and start understanding the origin of problem. Not trying to work out our particular difficulties. We're not trying to work through our check-off list of all the things that we have to think about and work ourselves through. We're trying to get to how problems are formed. How do problems arise in the mind? What is it? What are the human conditions? What's the, what are the elements that arise that form problems? You see? And we have to have a tool available to us that can show us what is happening so that we can then learn the genetic code of the origin of problems. How it comes together, what is it that... So awareness allows that understanding to take place. It will not resolve the fact that you didn't have a great relationship with your mother. It's not going to necessarily solve the problem with your boss or get you a better job or make your kids turn out all right. It's more fundamental than that. It's more basic We have to look at the problem. And we've read a lot of books and heard a lot of teachers and been to a lot of workshops and written a lot of notes, and here we are. And I often say that, let's say there are 50 of us here just for the sake of mathematics, and let's say the average age is 40. So 40 times 50 is 2,000. We have 2,000 human years here in this room. Has anyone, through workshops, intellectual discourse, analysis, 
resolved their problems? We have 2,000 years of human history here. How many more years do we need to go through before we put that strategy aside and look for a different strategy to come to the end of problems? Because if it hasn't been done in 2,000 years, well, well, we just haven't tried hard enough. No. There's something basically wrong about how it is that we have maintained the illusion and solution, the illusion of our solutions. So now we have to try another way. If it had worked, fine. But the fact that you're in this room and you've been in this room for two difficult days, I assume that you're here with some sincerity. Now we have to look in a different way. We have to look with awareness, non-judgmental awareness. And we have to see this thing. We have to see our own resistance to life. We have to look at how we constantly, moment after moment, are digging our heels in, in the path of living. How we're scratching the walls with nails being streaked across life's corridors, moment after moment. Because that's, in essence, what we're doing. And until we see that directly, firsthand, and we feel the pain of the torture of that stance and posture to life, nothing will happen. We will live another 2,000 years in futility, And this is not just an awakening of attention, which is the light beam, but it's an accompanying awakening of caring about what we see. Caring. The caring, the heart. The heart. Not some distant objectivity, but intimate, sensitive, awake, pressed right against life, no distance separating, so that the rub of life, the nuances of that rub, are felt all along the way. And so it's the confluence of attention and open-heartedness. And the Buddha talked about sati slash sampajanya, mindfulness, the light beam, and clear comprehension of what it sees and taking in the details and the nuances of what it sees. Taking in the context of what it sees. You see, if it was just truth, if it was just what we saw, well, there can be a subtle way the mind loves that because it's so abrasive. It's so dismissive. It's so black and white, isn't it? Can't, isn't truth just black? It's this or that. But the Dharma isn't. It's gray. Living is gray. It's nuanced. It's contextual. And therefore, for Buddhism isn't a blueprint. It says... Let's see, problems with mother-in-law. Okay, you follow this flow chart up here. 
and she yells at you, and you, uh, and there's the answer. It's not like that. It doesn't do that. What it does is provide the context for you to have clarity, which is the clear scene of, of your attention. The clarity. And the context of that clarity. It's like listening. I don't think there's a, a better metaphor for meditation than listening. A good therapist or a good listener, doesn't have to be a therapist, listens to the words, but also the contextual situation from which those words are offered. The body language and the circumstances and the environment that the person is in and what the listener is bringing to that listening is part of that whole context as well. It's in that wide expanse that the heart comes in, not just through the stark black and white of the truth, but through the contextual play. And so, really, clear comprehension is the heart element. In fact, in one sutta, the Buddhists talked about... uh, wise speech, not in terms of just saying what is true, which would be just the cracked whip of clarity, but to the context of saying what is true and useful for that person to hear. Is it the right time for that person to hear what you want to tell them? Hmm? So to take in the circumstances See, that's the heart. The heart comes into play through the nuances of life, through the rub, through the the sensitivity of the awareness. So this is not just a cutting sword, although that's one of its qualities, cutting through, discriminating awareness, but also sensitivity, the sensitivity element, the element that holds a greater, that makes the water of awareness wetter so that it flows into the nooks and crannies of the situation. You see, we have to awaken the mind and the heart. That's what we're doing here. And we start the instructions. In fact, the means that we employ must be aligned to the ends that we seek. The tools that we use to get to whatever it is that we see as the goal or the fruit of the practice must be in a line. If you have some sense that the fruit of the practice involves a full-heartedness, a full heart, a heart of love, an awakened heart, then you can't use self-brutality as a method to come to an open heart. And so we take off on this practice every step of the way with self-kindness, with the caring, with the caring. But caring without attention, it just can be romanticism or idealism, or it leads to burnout, to unfulfilled expectations. It's idealistic. It's not, it doesn't have reality in its bearing. So it has to be caring attention. Caring attention. Hand in hand. Caring attention. So ask yourself, when you're sitting, what's behind this attention? Where is there caring in this moment? In the moment when you're under duress, in the moment when the mind is not behaving, remember, just See, let the commentary go. Let the judgment go. That's not a part of the seeing. What's the light? What if I just showed light upon that duress? What if I just 
turned the flashlight onto that dress, what would the flashlight do to it? And then relax and let the heart open to it. The heart doesn't want anything more than just to open to it. It just wants to relax. And it can't relax if there's any resistance at all to it. So let's see what it is that you see. Orient yourself properly to it. And then relax with it. That's why we're emphasizing so strongly the word relaxation. Relaxation is allowing the pores of our heart of the sensitivity, of the element of clear comprehension to come in. So we take in not just this burden of having this difficult emotion, but the, okay, I can feel this. It's okay, I can feel this. Just like You can feel it even in the words, okay, let it be, come what may. I don't have to analyze. I don't have to justify. I justify it because I don't think it's safe and I need some other explanation on top of it to make it safe enough to be able to hold. That's why I justify it. That's why I analyze it. But if we're willing to see and relax with it, no justification or analysis is necessary. Not in its fundamental principle. I'm going right to the fundamentals now. Skillful means comes in helping us do that. So I'm not denying skillful means, but we're just looking at the fundamentals now. And as soon as we relax, we take the edge of I off of it. It's not about me. never was. And we see that. In fact, the light has no holder. There's no light bearer. It's just light. Just revealing. At first it feels very mechanical, somewhat artificial, like we're doing it. I'm shining here and then I'm shining there. Then I'm trying to shine somewhere else. And there's very much a person back there aiming and getting it back and all of that. But really what is happening back there is a reactivity, a slight resistance that is not being recovered by the light. Not being, it's not being seen or revealed. And so it stays dark and appears to be the watcher and the holder and the light bearer and the student and the yogi and the seeker. And the more we relax, we relax even those tendencies even that placement, and suddenly the light turns back in on itself. So what's this? What's this thing? And as soon as we show, this is is the elegance, okay? This This is the elegance. This is the elegance. When light shines upon anything, without resistance, which means without mind, without mind minding, with just the light shining, it becomes porous, it becomes vacuous, it becomes light itself. This is true alchemy. This is the alchemy of spirit, that all things of, are of the essential same nature And when light touches itself, without fear, without resistance, without, it opens up. It's no longer the thing we thought it to be, but it it becomes, through alchemy, more light. And at first we're in the attic and we're studying and looking and doing about this. And there's a place for that. Most people start there and work with the flashlight in their attic of their room and looking through their mind and learning to steady it, which are all very important parts of the practice, of the cultivation, of the practice. All very important. But then at some point, 
you walk outside and the sun is shining. And you're not in the attic anymore. And there's no recesses that are fearful whatsoever. And there are no problems that are waiting to be picked up after you lay down the spade. And the heart is open to its natural resonance of caring. And it can't be fooled anymore. And the heart awakens through the pain of its beliefs the configuration of its resistance, all the emotional tensions that we have throughout our life, it wakens through that, not around it, not shunting it, not bridging over it, but through it. Every one of those things, and it becomes not a drudgery of having to line things up and look through them, because once we get the sense of how this thing works, they all line up on their own. They go, oh, God, of course, I don't need to do that anymore. I don't need that anymore. I don't need to work it out. So what keeps us from caring? It's because most of us aren't willing to move our light into the difficult. And your heart can't awaken when you're running from the difficult. In fact, that's the definition of a closed heart. And when you learn that basic principle of dharma is to move into the difficult. Let me see. Let me see what's here. I can hold this. You learn the capacity that we have, which is infinite. We believe it to be finite. We have an infinite capacity in life to hold experience. as long as we're not being resistant to what we're holding. In fact, the limited capacity is directly proportional to the resistance we have of it. So the less fearful we are, the more capacity our heart has to hold. And so caring becomes an intimate step on this journey. Everything. How am I holding myself? Is there self-brutality going on here? What is the reaction? Not the thing itself. It's never about the thing. Anger, fear, indecisiveness. Loneliness. Okay. Those things can't maintain their differentiation and distinction without your fear. Your fear, our fear, is what creates the distinction. Without resistance, there is no distinction. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that invite curiosity? And yes, we have to go through the often prolonged training of learning how to focus the attention so that it doesn't stray and returning to the breath and to the body and feeling the body and opening and all of that. And we're learning all along the way. Because the means we're applying, which is an openness, to learning 
wherever the light beam falls, even learning when the light beam can't fall where we want it to, because there's also learning in that. The Buddha didn't say, put your mind on your breath and keep it there. He said, notice when your mind is on your breath and notice when it's not. Learn both times. But if we have a whole idea about us being a good meditator only when our attention is on our breath, then what is it, one or two moments during a sitting that you're a good meditator? No. It has to be broader than that. It has to be wider than that. The heart has to come into this. It's not about getting it right. Okay. Yes, there's a point in which we want to be able to observe and see, and in order to do that, the flashlight, the light beam, has to be steady, sustained attention. Because we can't see what it is that we're looking at unless the light is steady. And much of the time it's not. So how are we when it's not the way we want it to be? Because that is the telling, that is the telling tale of whether caring is merging with attention or not. Is it caring attention? Caring attention. And what keeps us from being able to pay attention? Well, it's not your fault that you can't pay attention. Most of it is culturally induced. Our culture wants to keep us externalized, keep our focus outside of ourselves. It doesn't want you to be introspective. The economy will collapse under introspection. It can only sustain itself when you have external objectivity. So that you want this and that and fear that and have to have that. So it's inducements from grade one on is to keep you that way. So that's okay. That's the way it works. It's not some malevolent Oz man back there creating all this smoke. And It's us. We. You, you and I. We're doing it to ourselves. Okay, but we've got to see that. All right. So that's not the way to do it. Okay. And the other thing is, is that we don't believe our pain is self-induced. By God, you and I would be so interested in our life if we just came to that one conclusion. Oh, this is self-induced. Let me look at this. We still, part of us, still believe it's other-induced. It was so cold yesterday, no wonder I couldn't sit. So the whole thing, as we begin to understand more and more that it's not other, it's here, here in this room. Now let me enter this room with my bare essential equipment, light and heart, and not separate those two. So as soon as my light comes on, my heart is open. Okay, let me open to this. Let me relax, allow, just let be. Just this. Okay? Tender. Tender. Kind. Can we sit for a minute or two?
Where's the problem now? Where is there a problem as we sit here together? Don't create one. For this moment, let there be none. Is this some kind of an anomaly? Some kind of weird time when I'm just... No. This is the state of affairs when we aren't resisting. And you notice that when you don't resist, the heart comes out. It's not that you have to propel it out. It comes out. Its existence is immediate in non-resistance. Okay. Now we're beginning to see our way through this. Now we're beginning to understand. That's what I'm doing here. Thank you for allowing me to share. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.